Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Church, it's so good to be back with you. This like warms my heart. It's like a family reunion for me. Oh, thank you so much for that. Hey, we are uh, gonna dive in this morning to, to God's word. We're gonna tell some stories this morning because we've got kids with us. And I'll just say this, um, update in my life and. 10 days, I'll be, uh, let's see here, taking four flights and a lot of unfortunate car rides to uh, this country, Zambia. It's in the lower part of Africa. And I was just thinking like, because people ask, Dave, what are you doing now? This and that, like, oh, I'm going to Zambia. Is that, is that enough for, <laughs> that doesn't tell you a whole lot. Uh, and even my wife's like, so what are you gonna do there, Dave? Like, are you gonna build something? I'm not building anything in Zambia. They don't, they don't want my handiwork. But I'll be going to this place and we'll be spending time at different area development projects And really my mission is to get to know people and to get to hear and feel and to experience and enter into their stories. Just like you and I do with friends and families, we enter each other's stories. And so this morning, I did think it'd be fun to to dig into some stories that God has has put on my heart. And so let me just pray for us. And uh, if it's okay with you, then we'll dig into what God has for us this morning. God, thank you for the the gift that it is to be here, to be together. Uh, Thank you for fun and cornhole. And thank you, Lord, for the scriptures that we get to unpack together today. I ask God that right now you would speak to us wherever we come to Father's Day from, whether it's from uh, remembering a father that we're thankful for, whether it's uh, from grieving the father we never had or from celebrating the father we currently have. God, right now, we commission this morning to you, Lord, and we ask that you would speak to us uh, in specific ways. We pray this in your name, amen. Well, just a few weeks ago, we had what I uh, affectionately titled Tour Day Ron. Uh, my dad's name is Ron. And so for his birthday, my older brother and I decided we wanted to help co-plan a day with our dad to revisit all the meaningful locations of his childhood. And so we gave him some homework. We said, hey, we need addresses and we need a route and we wanna go do it. So a couple of weeks ago, Tour Day Ron began and it was a seven hour day planned. From San Francisco to San Mateo, we were gonna revisit every possible meaningful location. And the day began in San Francisco where he would spend almost every weekend uh, at his grandfather's house, much to his mom's uh, demise. They would go to his dad's grandparents' house. And so every weekend they'd be there. So we roll up, we're gonna start our day there. It's like 9 a.m. And he's telling us all these stories out front, this San Francisco, you know, little uh, like apartment that's sandwiched between all kinds of buildings, whatever your mind goes to, that's exactly what it was, right? And so it's got those bay windows, it's popping out. And he's just telling me all these stories about every weekend, his four siblings and cousins and everybody's stuffing in this Italian household, how his grandfather was a fruit peddler with a horse in the garage and would peddle fruit all week. And that's how he made a living. And we're telling us these stories and I'm like, I have got to see inside this place. So I walk over and I ring the doorbell and I'm thinking, what am I going to tell the person? Like this story sounds so made up. I wouldn't let me in. Ring the doorbell and all of a sudden you hear like this pit bull begin to bark. And I instantly am like regretting this decision. 
Moments later, though, this nice young gal in her 30s comes to the door, opens it up, and I just proceed to like flubber over my words trying to describe that we're taking my dad on this tour de ron, and this was where he grew up with his grandparents, and I'm thinking this is not going well. And she just pauses and she goes, hey, I've got pancakes on the griddle. I'll be right back. She goes, she turns off the oven, comes back, and we start talking. She goes, do you guys want to come inside? <laughs> yes, we do. So we come inside and she, we spend a half hour and he just tells us stories of the place. Now, when my, grand, my dad's grandfather sold the place, they sold it for $80,000. Two years ago, it sold for $2.5 million. And still a dump in the backyard, to be honest with you. They hadn't touched it in like 100 years. And, and so here we are, we're going through the house though, and it's just like, and he's starting to well up with what looks like tears. It's this emotional moment. He can remember all this architecture and detail. And uh, it was just an amazing kickoff to Tour de Ron. As we're leaving, I walk by this portrait and I go, I recognize that lake, that's Lake Folsom. I go, Lake Folsom, have you ever been there? She goes, oh yeah, I grew up in El Dorado Hills. <laughs> I was like, come on, my people. So, it was an amazing moment. The rest of the day, I kid you not, we went to every school, all the way up to his community college, his elementary school, his middle school, his high school. We went to the house he grew up in. We went down the street to his best friend's houses, still had the same chain-linked basketball hoop. And he would tell me stories that would happen at each place. And then he'd go, at this neighbor's house, I learned this. And over at this guy, he taught me how to work on cars. And then he'd point to the, the local Catholic church down the street. He goes, my parents didn't want to be there on Sundays, but they'd kind of kick us out there on Wednesday nights for the kids' programs. And here's, where I, here's what I learned going there. And at every stop, there was one common theme. Someone who believed in him. Someone unexpected that came into his journey, uh, a professor, a teacher who pulled him aside, who gave him some wisdom, a neighbor, times where his parents figured out, they, they were figuring it out, and times that they were able to believe in him in unique ways. His first job at a sandwich shop, the way that boss believed in him. All the locations, one common thread. This morning, we're gonna look at some stories from scripture. We're gonna look at some stories from life. And there's one common thread. And I would say this, my hope if I was to ruin the end is that we would discover that God believes in us far more than we often realize he does. That long before you and I were invited to believe in what God has done for us, it actually says in scripture that God from the beginning of time believed in us and wanted a relationship with us. And the big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, is four words. Everyone needs a believer. I do, I believe it's wired within the DNA of humanity, this need for a believer. And that's what I love about a local church and a community and the ways that it helps people know that, they, that, that, that someone believes in them, the way I love about working with World Vision now and the way that they go to the far countries of the world to tell them, that, hey, someone believes in you. And I would just ask this question from the beginning. Can you, can you think of someone right now who believed in you? A subpart in your journey, at least one person, maybe multiple people, who something about them, something they said, something they did, something they, some way they showed up, you knew they believed in you. It might be a teacher, a neighbor, a coach, a relative, might be a youth leader, might be a camp ex counselor, leader, heroes. For some of you, it might be a parent. 
It's interesting, during that day, Tour de Ron, my dad, he, he had good parents, um, but he made a note to say, it was interesting, he goes, my dad, who I knew, my grandpa, he goes, my dad never came to any of my extracurricular activities. He never came to like a sporting event, ever. Can't remember one time. And he wasn't holding it against him, he was just making the observation. And then I made the observation, huh, like you came to every single thing I was in, always. And I just realized in that moment that he learned something he wanted to do differently in that moment. And it made me even think more specifically back to a moment. My dad, I was in Little League, I was terrible, but I was in Little League and uh, he'd be at every game in the bleachers cheering us on. Well, one Saturday, my brother and I, my older brother and I each had a game at the exact same time at the same sports complex. It's gonna have to choose. Kind of get done warming up and the game begins, begins and I remember looking to the bleachers and my dad's not there. And I had that normal thought that all secondborns have. I get it, I'm not the firstborn. <laughs> He's first to market, won the heart, like I get it. I'll always lose that battle, right? And so the game begins and the first person goes out bad and then there's like this, this moment. See, what I didn't know is that my brother's game and my game were back to back in the sports complex, like the outfields met up. Now the game's beginning and there's this awkward moment where everybody in the dugout sees this awkward guy walking out in between the fields with a lawn chair <laughs> and a big sign. And it gets even more awkward and just uncomfortable as you see him kind of sporadically looking both ways the whole time, cheering and pointing two different directions. And I begin to realize this embarrassing character is none other than my father, <laughs> finding a way to cheer for both of his sons and be at both games at the same time. And he didn't just cheer for us. And this is where it got less embarrassing. He began to cheer for both of our teams. The big idea, as embarrassing as it was, is everyone needs a believer, don't we? Everyone needs a believer in our lives. Have you guys ever had somebody make you a sign? It's a good feeling. Like when someone makes you a sign, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, they took some time, they, they kind of believe in you, they like you, they're for you. I think we need to bring back some signs uh, in our lives these days. Here's what I wanna say this morning. God has made a sign for us to show how much he loved us. I'm gonna to go to a little uh, verse that you often hear around Christmas time. It's in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah is speaking in chapter seven, and he says something for us really important. Chapter seven, verse 14. He writes, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, before Jesus was on the scene, God said, look, I'm gonna send a sign to show you how much I believe in you. And that sign would be God manifested on earth in the form of a human. That would be God coming to walk amongst us. Hundreds of years later, we fast forward and Jesus is on the scene. And around that ripe age of 30, his public ministry begins. And we come to a moment in the scripture we're gonna unpack for just a moment where Jesus is coming towards the town of Jericho. 
And you can imagine as Jesus's ministry is now heating up and he's approaching the town, the rumor mill begins to spread. Like anytime somebody with a rumors, like anytime someone knows coming to town, the rumor mill begins and the murmuring's happening and people are saying things like, did he really just heal a blind man or was that whole thing a shenanigan? And people are just talking about, well, so-and-so said this and, and he's coming. Now there's, meanwhile, there's this one guy and he, uh, he's not very liked in the community He's incredibly successful, but struggling with his own inner loneliness, I would imagine. And his curiosity is building as he hears that Jesus is coming. This person, kids in the room, you, you would identify with this guy in scripture on account of his height. He, he's, the scripture says he's on the shorter side. So if you've ever struggled to see what's happening in a crowd, this is your guy. Adults of height, you would struggle or you would identify with this guy because he had a curiosity about who Jesus was, but at the same time, he had some fears about getting too close to Jesus and what it may cost his life. As adults, I think we often have that thought running through our mind. We're curious, but we're nervous about what it could cost us. We pick up in Luke chapter 19, if you have a, if you have a Bible and if you're following along, Verses one through five, this is the story of Zacchaeus. It says this, he entered Jericho and was passing through and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, he climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, we're gonna pause there for just a moment. In Jericho, no one likes Zacchaeus. Why? He's not just a tax collector. What does it say? He's the chief tax collector. So as his quality of life would rapidly be soaring and in obvious ways, the people's lives around him would be deteriorating in obvious ways. He was the outcast. Nobody wanted anything to do with him, let alone the people he was collecting taxes from didn't even believe in the Roman government. And so to them, it just felt like stealing nonstop. And so here he is, he's in this town. No one likes him. His curiosity is building. He, he wants to see what's happening. And so it leads him to climbing up to a tree. And in this moment, Jesus enters the town and it says, Jesus looks up into the tree. Their eyes lock. Time slows down. And in verse five, I'll just start over in verse five again. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I must stay at your house today. Verse six, so he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him, Jesus, joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. It's the crowd, it's everybody watching, maybe even the disciples. And they said this, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Things are changing. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also the son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek 
and save the lost. Things begin to change as Jesus looks up into that sycamore tree and awkwardly sees a guy who clearly wanted to, to get a sense of what's happening. And never in a million years would Zacchaeus have probably imagined that Jesus would have made his way through the crowd to have a conversation with him, let alone to say, hey, we're gonna like stop this whole tour and I wanna go spend time with you in your house. In verse six, we get his response. What does he do? He doesn't just meander, he hurries down, it says, and he receives Jesus joyfully. Like you could tell Jesus spoke into something he was badly desiring. But then verse seven is probably how I would have responded. The crowds are like unhappy, like that's the guy you wanna spend time with? Like that's like the last person. And for the disciples, this is a PR nightmare. Like this is, Jesus, you're doing it again. You're making our lives so complicated. You wanna spend time with him? He's like the one you don't wanna be associated with. And Jesus is like, that's exactly who I wanna spend time with. And then in verses eight through 10, you and I have the benefit of seeing the life transformation that follows this exact moment. He exclaims, hey, I'm giving back half of what I have to the poor in need. It's like the, not a first, but it's a pretty significant philanthropist moment in scripture. And then he goes, and if I've defrauded you, I'll repay you four times. He says, if I've defrauded anyone, which is like, he's still in progress. It's like, of course you have. You don't make that statement unless you know you have. I'll repay you fourfold. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. And you see this like beautiful transformation of this life. Two, two observations. Number one, Jesus believes in the parts of us that I think we often struggle to believe in. If you can imagine the shame that was potentially holding back Zacchaeus from this moment and this interaction, it was probably pretty significant. And yet Jesus believed in something in Zacchaeus that I'm not sure Zacchaeus would have easily came to on his own. And then observation number two is that, that Jesus believes in those that we often struggle to believe in. Like he finds the people in the crowd, the people in the community, the people with the stories that we would often have the most difficult time being associated with, spending time with, or doing life with. Jesus identifies with these people that are struggling the most. You know, there was an interesting um, research that came out from Barna, and they said that 86% of American non-believers agree with the following statement that Christians do not follow Jesus' teachings. Look, there's a lot of times we get this wrong as Christ followers, right? I think we all would be like the first to say that, to own that. There's so many times I fail to follow Jesus' teachings. I'm a work in progress. But there's also been times over the last 2,000 years that early believers, that Christians have begun to get it right and have begun to live lives that are, are palatably different in the ways that we respond to things. And in the early church, their lives began to be so marked by something different that they began to be recalled, referred to uh, as Christianos, which means Christ-likes, like they're acting like Christ. It's this beautiful picture of what it might look like for us to live like Christ, to spend time with those that are most difficult to spend time with. What does it mean for us to believe in someone? I think that's an important question. I think to believe in someone, it means that we are willing to see things that they may struggle to see in themselves. It means that we may hold on to hope 
where they've lost all grip on hope in their lives. And I know right now you have people in your lives that God is positioning you to hold on to hope for them. Agreeing with them is not a prerequisite. Evaluating them on their, their past, present, or even their future ambitions, not a prerequisite for believing in someone. To believe in someone means we are stepping into, channeling the, the reality, the fact of, of the way that God views this person, that everyone, no matter what they've done, who they are, what they claim, everyone is a child of the creator of the universe. That everyone has been specifically and individually created by God himself. And that everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room has something unique to offer this world. And so our job, to believe in those people that are most difficult to believe in, is to maybe just come alongside them and to help them figure out what's their next step. How can I help them? Not every step. How can I help them with their next step in their journey towards Christ and towards the life that God has for them? Speaking of next steps, there's one person in the Bible in particular that had a hard next step to take, and I, I can't help but wanna go there for just a moment. Uh, his name is, is Peter. And in Matthew chapter 14, we've got this iconic biblical scene where the, the first barefoot water skier, the first guy walking on water happens. In Matthew 14, verse 22, it says this, immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go, by the way, he had just fed like 5,000 people. This is ex immediately after that. It's an exhausting feat. Uh, if you've ever ran catering, 5,000 is off the charts, okay? <laughs> Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain south by himself to pray or nap. We're not sure. The writer says pray. Uh, let's see here. When evening came, he was there alone, Jesus. But the boat by this time was a long way off from the land, beaten by the waves. For the wind was against them, the author writes. And in the fourth watch of the night, late at night, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And so backstory, they're done feeding 5,000 people. They're sent ahead. These, are, these disciples are experienced fishermen. Like they're experienced boaters. And yet the winds are against them and they find themselves stuck on the open waters. Stuck and in need. I don't think it matters how long I'm following Jesus how long any of us are following Jesus, we're gonna experience some stuck seasons in our life, aren't we? You ever experienced the moments where you just feel stuck in a situation? And it's in, this, it's in this moment that we see Jesus begin to respond. But I'll say this, that no matter, no matter how seasoned we are, when help begins to approach us, fear can also begin to grow. It's actually scary to sometimes think about receiving help. You guys ever been there? It can be scary to receive someone's assistance. And so the story continues in verse 27. They're in fear, they're crying out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I. He says it very clearly, do, do, you don't have to be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, 
Could you command me to come to you on the water? 29, verse 29, Jesus says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he began to walk on water and he came to Jesus. Incredible. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately, it says, reached out his hand and he took him saying, oh, you have little faith. Why? Why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. First of all, they just then started worshiping Jesus. It's like he just fed 5,000 people, but apparently they needed a water walking moment. And so here's what's happening. Peter is invited to step out of the boat to take a next step. Jesus believed in him before he took this out. He didn't just run out of the boat. Jesus said, yeah, come, come to me. And we see in this moment, this, this moment where Jesus' belief precedes Peter's walking on water. Jesus often calls us, our faith, and you guys are familiar with this, if you've been around the church for a little bit, your faith can call you to some uncomfortable, sometimes seemingly impossible moments. When we have a life encounter with who Christ is, and we feel compelled to start changing some things in our life, to let go of some sin in our life, to change some habits, to realign some things. It can seem so impossible. Two observations not to miss. Christ believes in our ability before we step out. And number two, While the answer to sinking, to the half-faith moment, seems so obvious to us in hindsight, what's the, the answer is simple and yet so complex. No, no, get your eyes off the wind, fix your eyes back on Jesus. Fix your eyes and your ears, attune yourself to Jesus, not, not the wind, not the challenge. Something so simple, so complex. I think the enemy loves to, to use some lies in our life with some steps that are before us. The enemy loves to have us believe that, hey, you're stuck for good in this situation. Hey, no one cares about you. You were on your own. You ever thought that? Or maybe this, this lie that, hey, you're not worthy of that next step. Like you're not worthy of that relationship. You're not worthy of that joy. You're not worthy of, of, of feeling like your life has meaning. And so many lies keep us like the disciples still in the boat, afraid of taking some next steps. And yet all throughout scripture, we see that Jesus has this way, like a father will, of picking up some signs with Zacchaeus, we see his sign say something like, hey, come on out of that tree, I believe in you. With Peter, it probably says, hey, let's walk on water together. But we can flip back to the Old Testament and think of, think of David, hey, let's go slay Goliath together. Or you could think of the woman at the well who no one caught the name of, where Jesus had his first moment of public ministry. And you know what Jesus' sign would say? You're my first choice. 
whose past was, was made you an outcast woman at the well. You are my first choice for my first opening moment of my public ministry to the world. Saul, who became Paul. Saul, who was known as the persecutor of Christians, who later had this transformative experience and wrote three-fourths of our New Testament. I think the sign would say something like this, you are not your past. I believe in you. I believe in something that many around you probably can't see. Don't listen to the lies. Big idea, everyone, all of our stories need a believer. And these stories like ours, like our own, are inflection points moments. They're inflection point moments. And so two questions I will leave us with is this. Have you received the fact that God believes deeply in you and the life that he has for you? Have you felt, have you recognized, accepted that he believes in you? And then number two, do you realize that God wants to use us as his people to be a conduit of his grace and his plan? See, the good news of the gospel is this, that long before you had the chance to believe in him, he believed in us. And the way that he wants that message to spread is he gives us some blank posters. And he says, whose name will you write on this? Whose name, who's, who, who is it that I've positioned you to come alongside and believe in? I think it's often difficult for us to go, like, where do I even begin? I was thinking about that question of where do I even begin this last week? And I was thinking about a story of World Vision's former president, Rich Stearns. He was a 20-year president of World Vision. And early in his time, he took this multi-country trip to review some of the work around the world. And the last country he was in was India. And the last day, literally the last day of a multi-country trip, he tells this, this moment, he recalls this moment where he's leaving this area development project. A massive earthquake weeks prior had just hit India and the devastation was through the roof. And as they're leaving, there's just crowds around the cars and the drivers kind of got it going. And, and while they're moving, just slowly, this woman comes running towards his window, the child in her hand with no, with no feet. And he just remembers her eyes screaming this message, please, can you help me? Please, can you help me? Now, in a situation of, uh, of a billion people and more need than you could keep track of, his driver just kind of kept the car moving. He didn't say stop, but that moment stuck with him his whole flight back and days later while adjusting to jet lag, he's at home and he begins to just tell of this moment to his, his kids around the dinner table. And they look at him and they go, dad, like, what are you gonna do about it? He gets done with dinner and he's thinking like, I can't even remember the community's name that we were in, let alone it's a crowd of what feels like a billion people all in need. And what am I, I, there's not much I can do about it. I've arguably do a lot already. But he makes his way to his study. Everybody's in bed now, opens up his laptop and he sends an email to the World Vision India team and it's just like, it's like a, it's a hella merry long shot kind of email. He goes, hey, I had this moment. We were leaving. I don't remember where, my last day. He describes the situation. He goes, is there any chance we know who this 
mom and child are. Two weeks later, he gets a reply. They say, we, we think we found her. And they begin to tell the story in this email of Vicus, a, a, a Korean search and rescue team after the earthquakes was deployed, came into his home, found Vicus and his mother. And to save his life, they quickly had to amputate off his feet. And they go, he'll, he'll be being carried the rest of his life or having to crawl the rest of his life. He said, is there anything I can do? And they replied back next day and they said, uh, we believe that he could get prosthetic legs, but it would also cost another surgery. We estimate that costing $300. Uh, do you authorize World Vision US to undergo this expense? And he replies back, no. This is a Rich Stern's expense. I'll authorize it. He authorizes the expense. And then a few months later, it's Christmas season. He's got another email from his computer from a name he doesn't recognize with an image that's taking far too long to download. You guys have all gotten there. You get impatient. And finally it downloads and he opens it up and it's like the best image of his whole life. It's this little boy with prosthetic legs, smiling ear to ear with his mom. And it's like this capstone moment for him that he then printed the photo and hung in his office as a reminder that when there's just feels like there's just too much need around you, what do you do? You just start with the one person in front of you. Everyone, everywhere needs a believer. It's in your household, it's on your street, it's in your community. Don't get overwhelmed by that. Just start with the person that God puts in front of you right now. Everyone, God's wired us. Everyone needs a believer to step into their corner. Church, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this morning. Just the chance to look at Zacchaeus and Peter and the ways that you believed in them, Lord. And God, so many of us in this room are thankful for the ways that you've personally believed in us, that you'd give your son Jesus for us. And God, out of the overflow of the ways and the things that you've done for us, God, would you equip us and help us as we leave this place, Lord, to be conduits of your belief in humanity and in people and in their stories and what you have for them. And for Lord, anyone in here right now who just feels like they've been forgotten and no one believes in them, God, would you right now just tap them on the shoulder and remind them that you are beautifully and fully for them. We ask this in your name. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.